Sure. All right. We will be spending most of uh, the uh, message this morning in Genesis 6. Uh, if you've got the Pew Bible, you should be able to keep up. Genesis, of course, near the front of the Bible. Six chapters in, you're good to go. I don't have any of the related texts on the overhead, uh, but if you want to flip to those, I will let you know where they are. Um, I'll be doing a fair amount of reading of those because the related texts I found in the New Testament are, I think, so important to understanding what is going on in the Old Testament. Uh, I did an intro for those who weren't for the, the Sunday school class uh, that we normally have at, uh, at 9 a.m. Um, I did an intro to Genesis then, so I won't belabor a whole lot of that now. But a quick recap is that this is, of course, the first book of the Bible. It is the Old Testament, so the narrative is a little different than what you would expect from either the Gospels or the Epistles. And sometimes, especially with chapter 5, which we explored uh, last week, where you'd get the first genealogy in the Bible with a bunch of repeated names and statistics and things like that, you go there and you wonder, well, where's the gospel here? Um, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Uh, it is the capital S true story that connects Genesis to Revelation and applies to every one of us now as part of the church. Uh, what do we do then when we go to the Old Testament and things seem a little bit different from you know, Jesus healing people and dying on the cross and resurrecting? I think that we will find, if we look for it, such amazing gospel setup in this text, just as we do any of the other uh, Genesis chapters, but especially the first 11 chapters that I've been focusing on uh, in my class. Uh, the title of this message is God Plans to Pour Out His Wrath but show his mercy. So that's the main idea. God plans to pour out his wrath, but show his mercy. Two opposite things there, so they would seem opposite, wrath and mercy. Uh, and again, I find going through this, when we see Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, very old legend that is completely true, and I believe literal, you see God punishing his people but also he sends them out of the garden, but he's also showing his mercy. Uh, with Cain, uh, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve in Genesis 4, Cain commits the first greatest sin there, the first murder. God punishes him, reenacts the whole drive out into the wilderness thing, but also shows Cain mercy. Uh, in Genesis 5, you see this line that comes from Adam and Eve's son, Seth, and it doesn't say who followed God uh, except for Enoch. And so you see, though, you know that out in the world, things are getting a little more evil, especially with the descendants of Cain. And we'll see that in today in chapter 6. You will also see God preparing to pour out his wrath, but also showing mercy. Uh, because Enoch uh, famously... Uh, did not die. He's uh, only one of two people that the Bible describes as never having died, apparently because he was just so righteous that the Lord took him. And we'll go to the book of Hebrews later, which comments on Enoch uh, as well as Noah. So we've already seen five chapters in Genesis so far, and the original hearers would have already seen God, their creator, good creator, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator, punishing people, that's his wrath, but also showing great mercy to people. I think we can empathize with that. Uh, if you, like me, uh, when the dog is constantly stealing food from the other dog, 
wants to punish said dog, but also feel very merciful, then we can start to grasp even as flawed humans a little bit of what that feels like. Uh, that may help as we're trying to wrap our minds around the idea that God is like this, only this is the truest and best version of that because he is God. Uh, parents, of course, would feel the same thing. Uh, your child does something extremely messed up, uh, was not kind to the Sunday school teacher, uh, but you also want to show mercy. Like, that's that constant tension. Like, how do I show mercy uh, but also discipline this child? You know, how does that child need to see consequences uh, but how can I also show mercy? We see here in Genesis 6, we'll read in just a moment, uh, that this righteous, all-powerful creator has reached just this kind of crisis point with his creation. Uh, and yet he lays in plans uh, to save a particular person, a particular family, and then not just human beings, but representatives from creation. And we'll read that in just a moment. Uh, for those in the Sunday school class, by the way, yeah, it's a little different. We usually do some interacting. Um, I'll be the only one talking here. But then I, I do definitely welcome questions uh, after, uh, after the message. Uh, and we also have a text chat going on, uh, which we've put in some discussion uh, here and there. Uh, feel free to let me know if you want in on that. Um, a few concessions, uh, just because, I mean, I know most of y'all here, uh, but if I'm struggling with this sometimes. I'm guessing we all are here and there. Um, every single one of us comes to the question of God's nature, especially that whole wrath-mercy uh, divide. I think each one of us has what I call a, a backstory. We have a life experience, maybe our own parents or churches we had growing up, maybe other denominations or other religions even, uh, or even more difficult circumstances. I think if we've seen examples of only wrath or only mercy or mostly wrath or mostly mercy, uh, that can affect how we see uh, God's nature, especially because God identifies as father in the Bible. You know, your experience with your dad might, uh, might affect how you see God the Father showing wrath or showing mercy. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff going on right now in uh, churchy news, uh, Christian news, uh, where I see a lot of people lining up on one side or the other. And you basically see people saying, well, this is too much mercy or, or this is too, too loving, it's too soft. You need to get some wrath in there. You need to call people to repentance. Uh, and then there's other people who err on the other side and then everybody gets on social media and fights with each other. Uh, is it law that people need most or is it grace that people need most? Um, it's not just trying to be nuanced when we go to the Bible and we see God is both at the same time. And if we feel confused, we need to study more. We need to pray for understanding. Uh, we need to ask God to reveal himself and not just try to fix the problems that other Christians have done or that we see in our culture. Uh, ultimately, we see that Jesus Christ, even though he's not here in Genesis 6 by name, uh, we see that Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is that fulfillment. Jesus alone shows at the same time God's wrath upon sin because his suffering was real, uh, but also God's mercy. Uh, that's what we're looking for as we go through a text like this. And so keep Jesus always in mind, even if you don't see him when you're reading an Old Testament text like this. And you will find symbols 
uh, you will find reflections of not only wrath, but also mercy, uh, specifically about Jesus Christ. Um, I also like to disclaim when I'm going through Genesis, because a lot of us come in with a, a lot of the legends about Genesis in our minds, and there's a pretty big one up front here in Genesis 6 that I laugh about sometimes, and I even did a whole podcast episode about it pretty recently. If you want to talk about Nephilim, I will give you a link for that, but I only bring that up, and maybe nobody, you know, some of y'all may not even heard about these critters, but I will always remember that pizza hut where I worked, uh, where the manager thought that apparently the only thing you needed to worry about in the Bible was the fact that aliens were Nephilim. Uh, or that one person who came into the Lifeway Christian store where I was working, and he wanted to talk about the monsters in the Bible or where the demons were at. Uh, you don't see any demons in this text. I- I'm sure they're around. You know, if, if men and women in ancient earth are going to be this evil, then the demons are probably involved somewhere. But I'll just note that the text doesn't talk about that. The text here, at least, is not concerned about what nonsense Satan was up to. There's one villain here, and it's the evil of man on the earth. Uh, And that means we can't sit back and go, Satan, demons. Uh, Humans are not a neutral player then, and they're not a neutral player now. Uh, We too have the capacity over this kind of wickedness, and it's only the mercy of God that draws us away from that and to himself course, you'll find some, uh, some disaster narrative here. Uh, if you've seen any of those movies where the meteor hits and the floodwaters rise and the, and the UFOs arrive and all of that, I think some of that comes from here, this original true disaster story. And some of this I'm setting up the, the next few lessons for the Sunday school too. Uh, so you'll get some of that vibe here, but uh, not until the, the, later, uh, the later chapters here. Again, the main point is that God quite literally is planning to pour out his wrath, uh, yet he also shows mercy. So let me read through Genesis 6 real quick. So you can turn to Genesis 6 in your Bibles. Uh, It's not up there. Matthew always has it up there. I do not. Uh, We'll just be reading it from the actual books in front of you. Beginning in verse 1, Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make, mm, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Cliffhanger. We'll finish that or keep going with that uh, next week at the usual time slot. What I've been doing in the Sunday school class, I'll do again here, uh, but with a little more emphasis on the main point. We are emphasizing, again, God's wrath, which is real and serious, but God's mercy, which is equally real and is wonderful. What I've been doing is going through and emphasizing what the text shows first about God, and then kind of go back through and then look for what the text shows about human beings. What does it say about our ancient ancestors? What is revealed about human nature and what God wants people to do? The purpose for which he made us here in the first place. And then finally, I go through for kind of a third pass and ask, what is this narrative, this story, true story, reveal about God's creation? I think sometimes creation uh, gets ignored uh, occasionally because there's so much to say about God. And even some of my classes, like I'll get to the end and like, oh yeah, we, we kind of forgot to talk about creation just there. But there's a lot to say here about creation because as every kid who grew up in Sunday school knows, you've got not just Noah and maybe some family members if it's a really expensive flannel graph set. Uh, you've also got the animals up there and the animals are fun. Uh, and maybe you've got a, uh, a toy Noah's Ark. Uh, that opens up, and you get the little cutesy animals in there. Uh, so many animals except for the dinosaurs. There were dinosaurs. Now, let's just get that out of the way, but let's talk about that later in the, in the text chat if you want to. Um, I, just, I would totally buy an ark set that actually had a triceratops or a brachiosaur in there. Uh, God loves his creation. So why is he flooding his creation? Why is he killing all the innocent animals but saving only two of each kind? Uh, we'll introduce that theme here as we talk about what this text says about creation specifically. But first, the prime character, the hero of the story, not Noah, although Noah's pretty great too, but God, uh, the creator. Uh, he is the protagonist. He is the hero all throughout the Bible. Uh, we want to focus first on his motives, his purpose, 
and why he's doing what he does, with special attention to the part where God is sorry. We can't cover all that now, but uh, that opens up some things. So I just notice in, in verse 3, first of all, God starts to respond uh, to whatever is going on with human beings. It doesn't say yet that the earth is terribly evil, but something is going on that makes God, in verse 3, uh, start withdrawing some kind of blessing. Uh, he says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Uh, commentators disagree on what is meant by the 120 years. Uh, you could go too far afield with that, but some people say uh, this means the doomsday clock has started. 120 years from God's announcement here uh, will be the start of the flood. Uh, other commentators believe, just as you might see now, uh, human lifespans will not to exceed 120 years. Uh, there's been a few people who've gotten to 122, 123, uh, but after that, even the most healthy people just can't make it uh, for much longer. So can't really take a stance on that. Uh, my guess is that the flood, uh, if people were getting really evil already, uh, then a century and a fifth is too long to let that go on. Uh, you've already got this mysterious uh, critters going on, the Nephilim, which the text here at least seems to indicate, uh, or like the gangsters of the ancient world, uh, the mighty men, the men of renown, but we're just not told that much about them. We're not even told that they're uniquely evil, but there's something going on there that we could talk about uh, in, the, uh, in the text chat afterwards. Um, it's just important to note then uh, that God is the one sustaining fleshly man here. Humans have been living all these length of years that we've seen in Genesis 5, but now God puts a stop to that. And the original hearers would have heard that and said, okay, that's why we're not living to be as old as Methuselah, 969 years old. That's why we're not living all these uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, the most we get now is 120. That's maybe how they would have heard that there. Uh, Colossians 1.17, I will turn to that real quick, uh, also comments just on how God specifically is sustaining his creation. Uh, this is not something that he gave up doing after the flood. Colossians 1.17 reminds us that God and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I just see there then a mercy of God that even in a world of sin, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God uh, and stuck their flag in the camp of God's enemies, uh, God is still abiding with man, his spirit in some way, giving them length of days maybe more and more time to repent, uh, more time to come to him or follow the example of the ancient men like Enoch uh, who are setting an example of faithfulness. Uh, but you also see then uh, a decision that God makes toward the direction of judgment because God now withdraws this blessing, uh, whatever that is. You also see uh, more about God's nature in verse 5. Uh, it's just assumed by our human narrator, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, that God is able to see not only the wickedness of man across the earth, but the thoughts of his heart. Uh, every intention, it says, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
this is God with a supernatural knowledge that no one else has. No evil source, that, uh, no, no evil force that we know about uh, has the ability to look into someone's heart. This is God alone who can do this. The intentions of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, that too is a great mercy. God knows us from the inside out, uh, but also a warning. God knows us from the inside out. God also, in verse 6, this is where it gets complicated, folks. Uh, God also shows regret. The words used here, at least in our translation, are the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I just ponder that for a moment. Um, and th- this does happen throughout Scripture where God is said to express some kind of regret. Uh, we believe that God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing catches him by surprise. Uh, he's not limited to the present time no matter how far deep into men's hearts he can look. God knows all things past, present, and future. Uh, and he's not only looking uh, from his eternal present and then trying to see what would happen or calculating it out, but he is still the architect of the story. Uh, there's no detail that escapes him. Uh, it's very clear from other texts, for example, Isaiah 45, uh, that God's sovereignty is absolute. Let's go real quick, just to, just to check the whole God feels sorry thing, just to balance that out with the rest of Scripture Uh, If you want to, you can turn to Isaiah 45 and just grab a couple of verses from there. There's so many other texts about this uh, where the same God who here is said to feel sorry and express regret uh, says something uh, seemingly a little different in Isaiah 45, starting in verse 5. He is speaking about uh, a, a king who may not even follow him, but God is telling the prophet Isaiah uh, thousands of years in the, in the future after the flood. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, on the surface, that almost sounds like a distant God. Uh, If you're not familiar with the great God of Scripture, it could almost even sound uh, boastful, um, cold even. Uh, God is this Old Testament figure looming in the clouds somewhere. His, His hair is all wild, and he's throwing down lightning bolts like Zeus. Well, God does control the lightning, uh, and he is far removed. He is transcendent. But you also see here even a glimpse in verse 7 where he says, I make well-being. Uh, if I was doing a message about this, I would look into what, what do we mean by that. It, it, on the surface, appears to be God's mercy. God makes good, m- makes good things, not just calamity. But here's that contrast again, the mercy and love of God versus the wrath of God. God creates calamity. And those who heard this would have maybe thought of that true story about the flood. And like, yep, he definitely creates calamity. So you've got God's omnipotence here. 
Uh, you've got his decisiveness. God takes action. Uh, he is sovereign. He is in charge. But then we go back to uh, verse 6 of Genesis 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Our great God is complex, uh, and that's putting it mildly. Uh, he is, he, his character is complex, but for him it is simple. It's us who go far in one direction of wanting to go all wrathful or all angry uh, or create some kind of calamity as best we can. And it's us then who then backtrack and overcorrect and maybe want to go too loving or too compassionate. Uh, I heard a phrase a few weeks ago where people say toxic empathy. Like even the empathy that we have can go in a very sour direction. Uh, we're enabling sin uh, rather than standing back sometimes and letting the consequences play out. But God is not like that. Uh, even just the sixth chapter of the Bible, you see this complex nature of him. He is both merciful and yet he's also planning a calamity. Uh, how does that work exactly? Uh, where we get confused about that or we have associations from our our past or things we know about, I think this is just another incentive for us to draw nearer to God, to ask those tough questions, and to trust him. And I wonder how Noah would have thought about this. Because you look about the Lord saying, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. And those familiar with how we even got this record would guess that Noah had a hand in transmitting the original version of this to whomever, probably Moses, who collected these records inspired by the Holy Spirit. God himself would have had to tell Noah, this is my decision, you got 120 years. Uh, I'm withdrawing my spirit from the world in this way, uh, and now I'm going to send my calamity. I'm sorry that I've made this world. Um, how is God sorry? Uh, the term there I saw in a commentary uh, is about regret. There's no other way to explain that. It's almost like repentance, but God doesn't sin. God does nothing wrong. Uh, he is absolutely righteous. And so his decision then to blot out his creation, things must have gotten so terrible, more terrible than anything we rant about in the news or in the articles today. Things back then were so terrible that God could not let it go on anymore. Uh, we read in Romans 1, we may touch on that later, that God is also long-suffering. He is patient. He will let things go on because he wants people to repent. Uh, he wants those consequences to play out. Uh, he lets things go on out of his mercy. And it's in his great mercy that he sometimes let us go on uh, instead of judging us like this. He, he wants us to repent and embrace the gospel. But here, apparently, it's 120 years one way or another. Uh, another thing that this text is very clear about. It just assumes that the Lord is justified. Uh, it assumes that God is righteous. So we get this, uh, this signal in verse 6 to uh, almost risk thinking that God is sorry, that God made a mistake, almost on human terms. Like It's so important for the Lord to be uh, empathetic here. Uh, the text means for us to take God's side, we're not told about whatever terrible traumas uh, or generational issues led people to sin this much. Uh, the text is asking us, no, here's the main character. It is the Lord. It's not even Noah. Noah's the secondary character here. We'll spend more time with Noah in the next few chapters. 
But here, God is the hero. We're expected to take his side. Then we see, give me one second here. We see then, after a, after a break to review how evil people are, and we'll get to the human factor in just a moment here. Uh, picking up in verse 13, uh, God shows mercy. He starts showing mercy to Noah by revealing what he's going to do. And I notice here too, especially when comparing with God's act of creation in Genesis 1 through 2, uh, God is responding creatively to the calamity that he's about to cause. He's got this all planned in advance. Uh, and I think sometimes we're so familiar with the, uh, with the story of Noah and the ark and the boat and the animals and the draft sticking its head out the window and all of that, that maybe we miss just how creative this is. Uh, God is omnipotent. He has unlimited options to destroy the earth. He could nuke it from orbit and start over. He could have a solar flare. Uh, he could have an asteroid hit. Uh, he could have volcanoes erupt, climate change, whatever. No, uh, he is planning now, as we see a few verses later, to flood the earth. And there's a, there's a poetic meaning to that uh, that we'll get to in a moment. But God is also planning the salvation in such a creative manner. Uh, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, he says. He's giving Noah then, speaking out loud, his justification. Surely Noah by now knows what's going on as well. Uh, he must have noticed it getting pretty bad out there. But God tells Noah this creative plan for a boat, uh, a vessel. We're not told whether or not humans were seafaring at that time, but apparently Noah knew how. But God gave him some specific dimensions for how to build this. And there's, uh, there's, there's cubits and length and width and depth and all of that. And you know, if you're a nerd, you can look at that and probably come up with some concept art. Here's what the ark may have looked like. Uh, there's one in northern Kentucky that I've been to once or twice that uh, does a pretty good job of showing you the scale and size of this thing. Uh, we'll not get into all of those details now. I just note that God, in moments like this, enjoys getting into the details. Uh, God is acting creatively and giving the details this time not creating a world and then asking humans to go out and name the creatures, but to preserve his world. Uh, he has this all planned from the beginning, and you can just imagine him giving Noah the blueprints uh, for a physical object to build. Uh, I don't see that yet uh, in uh, Scripture. This seems to be the first time that God is doing that. He didn't do that to uh, Tubal uh, Cain and the, and the other uh, folks who are creating instruments and uh, tools out there, but he's doing that to Noah specifically. Again, a mercy. Uh, he could have just uh, asked Noah to figure it out. There was a movie. Did y'all ever see the Noah movie? Um, yeah. Okay, so points to this director who's not a Christian. They had the worldwide flood. The effects were decent, uh, but... In that movie, in order to raise the dramas, uh, they turned everything into this really hazy vision. And like Noah has a vision of himself falling through space and then into the flood and there's a shining light and, you know, it's all very poetic and artsy. Uh, this is not the God of the Bible. Uh, the God of the Bible is very clear. He speaks with words. Uh, if you're not understanding him, that is a you problem. It is not a God problem. God is very clear about what he wants here. And that too is a mercy. He doesn't just let Noah figure it out. 
He doesn't just give him hazy visions or vague language. He says, verse 15, this is how you are to make it. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits uh, wide, 30 cubits high. Make the decks like this. I'm going to bring the animals here. And there's probably other details we don't even see here. Uh, God made the sun and moon and stars to mark out dates and seasons. And it's not mentioned here the timing of when the flood is going to take place. But you can imagine that God gave Noah those details. And then he gives even more details about, I'm going to do it for 40 nights. It's going to start on this date uh, in chapter 7. Again, the mercy of God. He's going to bring calamity yet provide a way out. And here may be the most important uh, element of, about God's character here in Genesis 6 as we see it. It's in verse 18. God uses a very important word. It is an absolutely crucial word for those who study all of the Old Testament and then the New. And it's the word covenant. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come onto the ark, into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then he goes on to talk about the animals who we'll touch on in a moment. God is a covenant-forming God. It's such an important concept, so important that some Christians have debates over what exactly that means and how many covenants there are and how many ages there are in the Bible. Uh, how many promises did God make to people, all of that? I'm just gonna focus on the fact that God makes a promise. That's what a covenant is. It's a vow. God makes a promise and he keeps his promise it's almost anticlimactic. There's not a lot of dramatic tension here. God makes the promise. He gives the plans. He prophesies what's going to happen. It happens. Everybody survives. The end. Uh, God is faithful and merciful. Uh, you see another covenant that God makes then later on to the descendants of Noah, the Israelites, starting in Exodus 25. God promises his covenant to the people uh, under Moses as their leader. And some people, by the way, think that Moses was the one who collected all these records, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he gave detailed plans to the Israelites, that time not for an ark, uh, but for a tabernacle. Uh, also a building that people make according to God's instructions in order for salvation. God is merciful in giving us these plans. And that's why I don't mind when people say plan of salvation. Uh, because that means that God is the planner. He's planning calamity, and he's planning to show his mercy too. Let's touch real quick on us, our, our person here, Noah, uh, the person that uh, we, we should want to be like, right? Because you're supposed to uh, open to the, New Test or the Old Testament in Sunday school, and then you find the hero, the human being. Well, we've mentioned that God himself is the hero here, but Noah's an important player too. And we see a lot about human nature here, uh, even before Noah arrives on the scene. First, the bad news, verses 1 through 4. It, it's a little confusing because it doesn't use the word wicked. It doesn't use the word evil. All it says in verse 2 is, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And some people have some theories about what sons of God means there. There's nothing in this text anyway that gives the idea that anything other than just human sons. Uh, son of God uh, could be a description for Cain uh, as well as Seth. You know, it's a, a descendant of Adam who in the New Testament genealogy, the New Testament actually describes Adam at one point as the son of God, uh, creation of God. But here there's just people getting married, having kids, spreading out. No harm, no foul. 
unless there's something here that I missed. But then God starts withdrawing uh, his, uh, his spiritual influence that enables people to live longer. But something is going wrong. There's the Nephilim, and we won't get into that, but something's going wrong here. And then suddenly, verse 5, the wickedness is described. Everything is leading up to this wickedness. People can do great things. We've seen one verse ago, mighty men, men of renown, a bunch of famous celebrities back then. Uh, back in Genesis 4, we read about people making music and tools and building cities. And the text doesn't say those are evil, but it's going in an evil direction. And here it all comes together, and suddenly it's so bad. Human nature is so bad that the intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It gets so bad that God has to step in and cause a calamity. Uh, if you want to look at Romans 1, you get a description of human beings uh, that isn't limited to the world before the flood. Uh, it's a description that the Apostle Paul uh, describes for any kind of person uh, apart from salvation. I'm just going to read that real quick because the, the text here kind of simplifies. You know, the space is at a premium. Uh, we'd rather talk about the details of the ark and how God saved people. Uh, if you want to get an idea of how evil people were and what they're doing, uh, you're going to be a bit frustrated. But we can get a guess based on Romans 1, starting in verse 18. Again, a very important reference to the wrath of God. Uh, not just in the flood, but some future wrath that we'll touch on in a moment too. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Pause for a moment. Uh, even the people back then, maybe a few hundred years after creation, uh, you know, and, and most a few millennia, also were without excuse. God was still active in the world. There were still people like Enoch who walked with God so hard that they didn't even die. They were so righteous. Uh, men then were without excuse, and clearly that's how God feels because he's going ahead with the calamity then. Uh, you get the idea that Noah would have preached this repentance, this call to come on board the ark. Uh, it, I don't think the text specifically says that, but at this point, apparently nobody was listening, and yet they are without excuse. Uh, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You get this reference then to human beings rejecting God and the image of God in them, pursuing knowledge, claiming to be wise, turning into absolute idiots, and chasing after creation. Uh, this is still happening, of course. People worshiping the creation instead of the creator and the stuff that they make images resembling human beings that were made to make things in order to glorify God, but now everything is falling apart. They're now worshiping the stuff that they're making, images not only of one another, but of the animals. The very animals, by the way, that God is going to save. There's nothing wrong with the animals. They didn't do anything. 
It's human beings uh, who are turning these things into idols. And you can keep going in that text uh, if you want to, uh, to see what happens then where God starts a, pro- a progress of judgment. Uh, and then later on, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans makes this point in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. So the Apostle Paul makes this point about all of them out there who are getting judged because they're so evil. And then the Apostle Paul, lest you get a big head, turns to his readers and says, yeah, but by the way, we're also without excuse. Uh, Take warning from what God is doing to judge them and realizing that God is going to judge everyone. It's a sobering truth. It's just the way things are. But then the Apostle Paul moves into the mercy, just as this text moves into the mercy as well. Uh, Again, in chapter 5, you get this example uh, of at least one saint who walked with God. And they noted here that Noah also walked with God. In chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was righteous, blameless, and he walked with God like his great-grandfather, Enoch. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 22 and 24, Enoch walked with God, it says twice. Now, Noah isn't getting snatched away, taken to heaven, a cheat code to skip the death uh, that afflicts everybody else, but Noah does get plans to build a boat and escape the judgment of God. So in a sense, Noah follows in the footsteps of Enoch. It's just wonderful then to see that although we get this brief description of all the evil going on, uh, it's almost a relief to say, okay, there's at least one righteous person. And apparently he's taught his family also how to be righteous. Uh, His wife and his sons and their wives, just eight people. Just eight people. Nobody else makes it on board. We're not sure what happened to any other righteous people out there, but these are the only ones that are mentioned. Uh, We turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 11. We touched on that last week, talking about Enoch. And it's the the Faith Hall of Fame. No reason not to call it that. Uh, it's It's an epic New Testament commentary thousands of years later. Uh, People are still writing commentaries on the texts now, uh, but even back then, uh, whoever wrote Hebrews 11 uh, was commenting on saints like Enoch and Noah. So this is like the approved commentary on Noah, apart from anything that Jesus said as well. Hebrews 11, uh, uh, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah found salvation, but yet also he had reverent fear. Now, that's something that could also be a little confusing. Just like God seeming to repent of something, how can you have reverent fear? Uh, God's not a God of fear. God is a God of love. Well, this is reverent fear. We're not told in uh, Genesis 6 what was going on in Noah's head, but the approved commentary from the author of the book of Hebrews says that this was Noah's attitude. Uh, He was showing reverent fear. Noah knew that God was merciful, and Noah also knew that God was a God of wrath and judgment. So there is some cause to fear that, but we know as well that fearing the Lord can also mean personal relationship with him. It's not about fearing what he'll do to you if you don't. Uh, It's about knowing what he's capable of and that he has turned his wrath aside. Finally, 
let's touch on what this text shows about God's world. Uh, I don't think I can exegete all the details about the ark. Uh, some people may find some significance to the numbers or any of those things. I just want to focus then on, again, that central point, God's mercy versus his wrath. Why is God killing all these animals? It's human beings who have become evil. Now, the text doesn't say that the animals turned savage and were somehow guilty, just like humans were guilty. Uh, you might guess that this is going on, but that would be speculation. That's not what the text says. Why then destroy the animals? And there may be something that uh, you know, your kids would ask you if they heard about Noah's Ark in Sunday school, or a grown-up would ask uh, on the internet somewhere, why destroy the animals? This is so cruel. Uh, I think what we see here is, is a hint that human beings were the steward of creation. Uh, if we go back to Genesis 1, which we did on my, my second week of the class, in verse 28, God commands the first people, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and every creeping thing that creeps. God tells people, get married, have children, take care of creation. That's your job. That's your highest purpose. And the reason you do this is to glorify God. You're reflecting God's glory back to him. God can now look down and see, okay, I've got a bunch of people representing my image running around taking care of my creation, this glorifies me, God would say. Now human beings are not doing their job. Even building cities was pretty nice. Uh, having kids, nothing wrong with that, but now they're set on evil. Everything is falling apart, and it is now beyond repair. So the stewards of creation have gone bad. How then can you save the creation? Human beings are abusing God's good gifts. Uh, they're worshiping images of the gifts, uh, the worshiping the animals and pictures of the animals, uh, like it would say in Romans 1. I think that's the reason why God has to destroy everything, uh, including the animals. But he's not going to nuke it from orbit and start over. He is still going to save the animals. He's still going to save these representatives of creation. Uh, as man goes, whether faithful to God or rebelling against him, so goes creation, but God still loves the things that he's made. He's not going to just obliterate them into nothingness. He's not going to annihilate his creation. He's going to do a terrible judgment, and there's going to be lots of death. There's no question about that, but he's also going to save the animals. Uh, the creator who gave man stewardship, that, uh, that call to steward the earth on day six of creation, now gives Noah a special stewardship over creation. Uh, Noah's now taking the wood from trees that the creator made on day three, and God is giving specific instructions. Cut down my trees, chop them up, preserve the wood, make them into boards, nail them up in a frame, use a special solution to make it watertight. This is how you're going to build the boat. Don't know whether they knew how before, but God has very specific, like God knows not only how to make a tree from nothing, but he knows how it can be adapted for this special purpose that Noah's called to. I note too in verse 17, this is why it's judgment by water. Uh, the creator who divided the waters on day two and divided the land from the water uh, is now going to bring down the waters that he put up there to the waters down here reversing day two temporarily 
And then he's also going to drown all the land that he created on day three. Uh, it's a partial reversal of creation. Uh, it's go, making things go back to the chaotic water that the Spirit was hovering over in Genesis 1. And I do see in verse 19 through 20 that the creator of birds on day five and of animals on day six plans to save them. Uh, I mentioned earlier the dog I feel frustration with sometimes, but this is convicting to me because God loves people first and foremost. We alone bear God's image. That's very important to know. But God also loves animals. God also loves his creation. What a great mercy that is. Uh, yes, he's going to kill a lot of these creatures, but then he's also going to save them so the creation can keep going, spoiler alert, on the other side of the flood. God doesn't want to obliterate the creation. He wants to save the creation. And I think we, that's especially relevant to us as we look now toward a future judgment uh, and try to understand God's heart then. Is he going to obliterate it all or is he going to judge the world in a very different way uh, but also save his people and also save his creation? How does this change our lives? This text is thousands of years old. It's even older than the New Testament epistles that often have a lot of very specific things to say, like husbands love your wives, go to church, keep things decently and in order, uh, listen to the sermon, uh, sing with joy in your hearts, help the poor, like very practical stuff. I think sometimes the, the practical application uh, can get lost uh, when we're looking at the Old Testament. That's when I think we try to look at what the original hearers of this text would have been thinking. What was the point of teaching this to them back then? The original readers uh, or the people who heard this text, the Israelites, uh, their, their main application would have been to fear God uh, for his judgment, but also love God for his mercy. Uh, the same God who judged the world then, but also saved people by giving them a building to help save them was making them into especially called people. Uh, he was giving his original covenant people, the Israelites, a special mission to do, just as he gave Noah a special mission to do, and just as he gives his people now a special mission to do. They would have heard the call to God's mercy, uh, but also the warning about his judgment. So even then, you get hints of the gospel, God's mercy and judgment. It's not all wrath and ruin and brimstone in the Old Testament. And then finally, oh, thank God, we get to the merciful stuff when Jesus comes on the scene. God has always been showing his mercy throughout. He was always giving people that opportunity to commit a sacrifice in order to get this idea into their heads. If you sin, something's got to die. If you sin, something's got to die. People back then sinned. They all had to die in the flood. You sin that's got to be a sheep that dies or a dove or a goat or something like that, a bull, something really large and powerful has got to shed blood in order to have your sin removed. That motif is all throughout the Bible. It's at the heart of the gospel. But now we don't have to kill the animals. We don't have to fear judgment uh, by flood. Spoiler alert, God promised he would never do that again. Now we're on the other side of Jesus arriving and we can see even more of God's character because it's all in not just a, a God out there somewhere, but in the person of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. Where is Jesus, though, in Genesis 6? Uh, he's in what the Old Testament calls types, and, or the New Testament calls types and shadows uh, in the Old Testament. The same Apostle Paul who wrote all that about evil people in Romans uh, also wrote about the types and shadows in the Old Testament. 
uh, commentators have seen in the ark itself uh, the boat that rescues, just like the tabernacle, a building that rescues. And then you see a symbol of Jesus. Go board the ark, it says in the next chapter, and be saved. Go into the tabernacle and be saved. And then for us, come to Jesus and be saved. There's also specific New Testament warnings about another coming judgment. Uh, And we'd be remiss not to at least touch on this uh, before we close for the morning. Uh, It's another apostle, the Apostle Peter's commentary about the flood. uh, And then a similar warning about the judgment of God. And it's in the book of 2 Peter. That's a little harder to find. Even Hebrews is a little bigger. You might skip past uh, 2 Peter. Uh, If you can't find it in time, no worries. I'm just going to read a few verses from 2 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter's talking about scoffers who come in the last days and mock this whole idea that Jesus will be coming back. The scoffers, the Apostle Peter says, that all things are just continuing as they were from the the beginning of creation. There's no change. There's nothing to worry about. But the Apostle Peter says, in verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Very important though in verse nine, a lot of wrath there, a lot of fear, verse nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's more there, a prophecy of the end times, which we could get into uh, in another message or another class. Now, it's important to note that, yes, spoiler alert in Genesis 9, God says, no more judgment by water, been there, done that. Uh, God puts a rainbow in the heavens as a sign of his mercy, but then he's going to do it again, a different way, by fire this time. The next judgment's by fire, and there's more theology, there's more teaching in the Bible about that. God will pour out, not water this time, but a judgment of fire. It's going to judge human beings. It's going to judge animals. (laughs) Apparently, things are going to get wicked enough again to do that, what the exact order is, again, that's for another class. But God will also provide a method of escape. He's going to be patient. He's going to give, just as he gave instructions to Noah, he also gives his gospel to us. We don't have to build it now, though. Noah had to spend 120 years or however long it was building a giant boat to do this. Now Christ has come. God himself formed a human, Jesus Christ, who is human to this day, uh, so we must repent and receive him. And that's how every sermon is supposed to end, but it is true, especially for non-Christians need to know this. Like, there is no more important thing to know in the, the news that you must turn to Christ and receive him and be saved from that coming judgment, which is absolutely justified. And yet even now, though, uh, even, even if we're already saved, uh, we believe in Jesus, we know we're going to heaven and then going to the new heavens and new earth and, and all of that wonderful truth, But even now, though, we face calamity. 
uh, whether it's uh, sickness, inconvenience, uh, struggling, poverty, all of these things that people will, were dealing with then as well as now. Even when calamity hits, though, I think it helps us to know that in some sense, God has allowed that calamity, that bad thing to happen, uh, whether it's ice that brought down the branches that fell on your car or the allergies I'm going through right now. Like, it seems kind of small now, but we've been through you know, at least a two-year calamity of lockdowns and controversies and all those things. Even when the calamity hits, we can know at once God has allowed it for his good purpose, and yet God also will be with us. Christ will be with us. Uh, it's not just get saved and then you'll be successful uh, or just get saved and get other people saved. Uh, it transforms how we look at God, transforms how we see his mercy and his wrath. It may be confusing sometimes. We may have questions sometimes about why God wiped out all the animals or how bad things really were. But we see here that we can trust God and we can trust our creator to balance, to be the perfect embodiment of love as well as wrath, uh, mercy as well as judgment. We can be faithful just as Noah was and just as Enoch was. We can look to their example, but mostly look to God and pray for understanding for those complex issues, any of the weird stuff in Genesis 6 that we don't know about. We'll talk about that afterwards but I know that he will mean any calamity that he allows in some way for our good. <sighs> Next, we will see that truth reflected in Genesis 7 through 9. Um, I'll go back to my uh, regular time slot, 9 a.m. next week, if you want to join us. Uh, there'll be more interactivity there. Might run a little bit shorter. Uh, it's fun. Uh, if you haven't been there before, uh, we're just going to go through the end of Genesis 11 through the end of March. Uh, do join us there. Uh, Pastor Matthew will be back next week uh, picking up in the book of 2 Timothy. Um, let's close for prayer, and then we'll move on uh, with the service. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are merciful, uh, that you are in charge of the calamity. That can be so confusing uh, that the same God who loves us and cares for us who knows all of our life stories, who calls us by name, who created us to serve you, uh, also creates cataclysm, uh, can send disaster, uh, is in some way in charge of this, who allows this, uh, who is perfectly justified in, in uh, punishing evil. Lord, thank you so much then for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy toward Noah and his family. Um, you could have just destroyed everyone and started over, but it was important to you to have that unbroken line then, uh, just a few people carrying uh, that ancestry from Adam to Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the last Adam. We're not just looking at the, uh, the first Adam who committed the sin, and then we're all stuck with that, but we can look back uh, to you, Lord, who did not commit any sin, uh, who behaved perfectly, who fulfilled your own law, and then died and resurrected uh, to bring us to you and show us that ultimate mercy. Pray we can live in that mercy this week as we go about our callings or uh, resist any of those little calamities that are going on, uh, but that we would feel the hope that we have of trusting in you and your righteousness alone. In Jesus' name, amen.